Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is a syndicated show. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. In the media and in the policy, has been you know liberal feminism, and I think that in many cases, uh, what women object to is in fact exactly this kind of feminism, which basically has seen uh, equality with men as a as the fundamental goal, and uh, ignoring, for instance, that men too are exploited in this society and uh, you know as seen the as exclusive goal entering into the male dominated areas. That was the voice of author and educator Dr. Sylvia Federici speaking with Sylvia about her newest book Revolution at Point Zero. So stay tuned. You are listening to Latin Ways. We are very privileged this morning to be joined by Silvia Federici. She is the author of Revolution at Point Zero, Housework, Reproduction, and Feminist Struggle. Very privileged to have you on our program. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you to her for inviting me. Now, um, when we think about revolutions, you know, there's often uh, the idea of armed revolution, of uprisings, and we often, um, you know, don't think about the specifics of what it is we're trying to revolutionize or change. So tell us a little bit about your book. How was this book inspired? But particularly its focus on housework and reproduction. Yes, The Revolution at Point Zero, it's a book that collects uh, many writings I've done over a period of almost 30 years, you know, from the times I was very engaged organizationally in the women's movement to the present. And uh, it tries to provide a framework to think through, you know, what is domestic work and what is reproductive work as a whole, what place it has in society and in our life, in our experience, why it has been made so invisible and devalued, and also uh, the book looks at the transformation that have taken place since the 80s and through the 90s uh, in the restructuring of the global economy and tries to see uh, how these changes have transformed reproductive work and what impact these changes have had on women who have been and continue to be to this day the main, the main subject of, of reproductive work is still women who do most of the housework and most of the domestic work also outside of the home on, on a paid basis. So this is what the book presents in, and, uh, you know, my, some of the earliest essays are from um, the 1970s when I was involved in an organization called Wages for Housework, the International Campaign for Wages for Housework. You know, our position, I think, revolutionized, truly revolutionized the way uh, housework has been conceived traditionally because it has always been presented 
as a work of love, as a personal service that uh, women do to their family, to their children, their husband, and in a way as something natural, you know, something that uh, belongs or issues from the, the personality, the physical and psychological makeup of women. And uh, we, we've uh, fighting against this idea, which has been so important, you know, so effective in making this work invisible, making invisible that it is work. It is social work as much as any other form of work. And uh, in a way, we turned the tables around. We said, you know, housework, domestic work, the whole range of reproductive activities that mostly women, not only women, but mostly women, have done and do in the home, uh, have been the work that has not only reproduced our life, but has also reproduced the workforce and uh, have reproduced people's capacity to go to work on a day-to-day -day basis. So far from being unimportant, actually this work has been the pillar you know, the foundation for every other form of work. They have been really the foundation for, you know, the, the capitalist organizational work. And we have denounced, we have denounced the fact that, you know, employers uh, have gotten away with a lot of free labor because, uh, you know, without, uh, you know, a person at home, you know, reproducing you know, workers on a day-to-day -day basis, reproducing wage workers. Every place of employment would shut down. So we we really changed the term of the debate, and, and that in itself, I think, has been a revolution. Certainly, has raised the consciousness of the social importance of this work, and has raised the consciousness that we live in a society that in a way is committed to the devaluation of this work, is committed to make this work invisible. I'm so glad that you raised that. Um, you know, when we think of reproduction, um, we don't think about, you know, the the caring capacity that that reproduction requires and, yes. and who provides that. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about um, the way feminism uh, you know, as a movement, has become both uh, for many women almost an, a, an irritant. You know, I, I was reading recently um, a journal, and the woman said, "I identify myself as a womanist, not as a feminist, because feminist is men versus women, and womanist is all people." You know, to eradicate, you know economic violence against women. And I thought for a second, hmm, interesting. And so can we unpack a little bit how how we could do our revolution in ways that it's uh, more inclusive and accessible to people? Because I find that there is a divide between what feminism in the West means to uh, people who do not take race and class into consideration and what uh, the idea of you know this uh, 
perhaps alternative form of feminism in my opinion this womanist view of uniting both men and women in the defense of creating a society with equity um how how the two could converge and how the two could find some common ground in this idea of the sexual division of labor of on the you know the ways in which capitalism has naturalized inequality and exploitation as ways of being First of all, I guess that the, the first thing to clarify is that there is, although feminism is a general umbrella, there are actually very different types of feminism. Um, for instance, within the women's movement at its beginning as well, uh, after a short phase of seeming unity, you know, you had different political positions, and unfortunately, the one that got more prominent in the media and in the policy has been, you know, liberal feminism. And I think that in many cases, uh, what women object to is, in fact, exactly this kind of feminism, which basically has seen, uh, equality with men as a base, as the fundamental goal and, uh, ignoring, for instance, that men too are exploited in this society and uh, you know as seen the as exclusive goal entering into the male dominated areas you know and not ignoring and for example having access to wage labor ignoring for instance that the black women and women from other uh, ethnic groups that have been discriminated have always had to have a wage work because their husband never had the protection of a wage that white male workers had. And so the, this very narrow, and, uh, you know, so, and also the, the fact that liberal feminists never placed the question of um, reproductive work, its devaluation, and the devaluation of women's work, never placed it within a broader context, you know, a context that takes into account that we are in an exploitative society, we are in a capitalist society, and unless those those uh, relationships are also transformed, you know, it's not possible for women to receive any justice. The, the, the kind of politics that now is defined as politics of gender, you know, where gender is, is, is now a, an, an absolute term, not really contextualized, you know, within why, why in this particular society, why in this social system, you know, we have uh, the, this type of organization of housework, this type of organization of productive work. This is certainly one one factor that I think alienates a lot of women. Uh, also, there is the impression, and my view is that this has been promoted very much by the press, you know, that feminism it's a struggle against men. I, in my long experience, you know, being in the women's movement and studying the women's movement, I never, very few women uh, actually took that position, that men are the problem. Uh, even if sometimes that was said, you know, because that there was, in, in, the, in the impetus of the women's movement when it first established itself, you know, many times women founded the first 
people they had to struggle against was their husband or father because, uh, for instance, you wanted to go to a meeting and they wouldn't allow you to go out at night. Or they would be very upset that you be with other women and not pay all the time, you know, attention to them. But there were, I don't see in the history of the different feminism across the world that actually women have targeted men as the, as the enemy. They have targeted inequality. They have targeted subordination. They have targeted economic dependence. So I appreciate women who say I'm a womanist, but I'm not sure that it really resolves the issue. Uh, I think, again, one of the problems of feminism is that feminism has been uh, very much, you know, domesticated. That the kind of broad social transformation that in the early part of the movement, uh, at least in the United States, in Europe, the broad social transformation that many women intuited as necessary, you know, not only in the condition of women, but the society as a whole had to be changed. That was lost, you know, and then feminism was taken on, you know, by the United Nations government and, and domesticated, redefined in a way that could actually support a neoliberal agenda. In my view, this is the problem, you know, with, uh, with feminism and particularly, as I said, liberal feminism, which has now been taken by the media and by the international power structure as to be what the feminist movement is about. And this is, this is definitely a problem because it leaves out a whole problematic that has to do with international political economy, has to do with the dispossession of millions of people at the hands of, you know, the corporation. It has, there's a way with the forms of the exploitation of labor in so many different ways and with the impoverishment that international policies are creating, the destruction of the environment, and the new forms of racism that are, you know, daily being constructed. So I think that in, in this sense, in this sense, the dissatisfaction with feminism is genuine. But I would say that this is a kind of institutionalized feminism that, uh, is being produced, you know, through the many global conferences organized by the UN, you know, and has been introduced um, starting with the late 70s, but does not represent, you know, all the feminist movement that today uh, exists in the world. Again, I think we need to really distinguish. Uh, otherwise, we risk to accept the media portrait of what feminism is. One of the struggles that I think we've collectively faced, men, women, you know, of all classes, is climate change. It's also a struggle to remember that we are part of the land, that we are actually um, not separate, but part of it. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit, because we live in a world where 80% of all the refugees are women and children. Yes. And so the attack on Mother Nature naturalizes, it seems to me, the violence on women and the the erosion of productive rights. You know, the, the disaster that uh, we have witnessed in the last few days in the Philippines, 
you know, it's a very direct consequence of uh, this devastating policy because uh, there's a general agreement, for instance, that this incredible wind that uh, shaped that hurricane are a consequence of the warming of the ocean. And the warming of the ocean, of course, are a consequence of the really criminal uh, blindness and criminal refusal, you know, to change form of production, you know, which is in fact destroying the environment. And it's not only climate change in general, but uh, wherever you go from the, the furthest tip of Africa to Latin America to the U.S., you find exactly the same problem. You find the mining companies now are expropriating, are massively expropriating in violent and fraudulent ways often with the complicity of local chiefs, governments, and so on, people. And then squeeze this land, you know, squeeze this land to take anything out, and uh, whether it is gold or, or diamond or platinum uh, or, or, or oil, you have fracking that uh, is destroying so many in the U.S. as well, you know, thousands of kilometers in so many countries. So many places you have the same struggle today, whether it is Canada, whether it is, for example, the case of New Brunswick, very recently, where you have a whole indigenous population fighting against uh, the, the attempt to, for the mining company to, to come and do fracking in their territory, you know, who have come and confronted the police and they've been beaten, they've been arrested. This just a few weeks ago, in fact, their struggle is still continuing to this day. And not only the land, but the seas, the seas and the forests, you know, so we are moving towards a world where people are being made, uh, you know, homeless, refugees, you know, forced more and more into refugee camps or into these mega cities, 20 million people, you know, I think the idea of this corporation, the Monsanto and, and the mining companies, because there is a real continuity between the politics of agrofuel, agrobusiness, and mining, basically the idea of pushing the people of the world into mega cities and then uh, have complete control over the natural resources of the planet. This, I think, is the scenario, the landscape that is unfolding, and uh, all we can hope is that uh, people's resistance will be able to put a stop to it, will be able to reverse it. The other part, I think, is that we need to maybe explore how we go about resistance, because if the resistance of uh, workers in the Philippines and the resistance of workers in Canada and the U.S. were aligned, um, we would have very different response. You know, the Monsanto uh, companies would not be able to simply move with impunity. If you know, if if our struggles yes. were aligned, um, we would not have to debate whether women's work in the home 
should be shared work, should be, you know, acknowledged as labor, um, you know, we would have, we would have a, a, at least a, a conversation, you know, and yes. have the spaces to I, have. Uh, I think it's very, very important. For instance, as, a, as an example, this summer, I was in Greece, I was in Thessaloniki, and uh, some friends drove me up to this area, Alkiri, which is in the north of Greece, the beautiful, beautiful area, little paradise. It is near one of the oldest forests in Europe. The sea is marvelous, and there are all kinds of beautiful old villages. And right there, a, a Canadian company from Vancouver, its headquarters are based in Vancouver. It's called El Dorado, and I know because I did some research, so I know it's in Vancouver. It's a basically planning this incredible project, which is an open mine extraction of gold, which means that the construction of a huge, huge hole uh, that would be filled with uh, all kinds of cyanide or mercury to detach the gold from the ore. Uh, already, they have begun logging from this very ancient forest. So, Presumably, the forest will be destroyed at the end of the process. Actually, the process does not have an end inside. The gold in the in the terrain is very small. So, in order to dig the gold, they have to move a huge amount of soil, and that will create a permanent cloud in the sky. Permanent cloud in the sky. So, the villagers around have been protesting and protesting and protesting. They've been really uh, also, unfortunately, this company, El Dorado, has the support of the government and the government sends the police. When we drove up to the village, we saw, you know, a police truck stationed almost close to the entrance of the village. And, uh, of course, the connection, if people from Greece could be connected with people uh, who are against this type of practices in Vancouver. I wonder if we could talk about the alternatives, because in many ways we were talking about creating a new commons, you know, a, yes. a commons of uh, sharing not just knowledge but also resources. Absolutely. Uh, you know, a, a number of things I think is very important to realize that uh, even now with this immense drive to, you know, take over all the land by the corporation, nevertheless, you still have many populations in the world. I think Latin America is a good example who still have the land, who still own land in common and still manage the land on a community base, on a communitarian base. It's very important to know because many times when we speak of sharing, sharing the resources of the earth, you know, people have been so individualized and people have been often so, in a sense, convinced that capitalism is the only way and the notion of private property, uh, that, that this is the and competition you know, in the labor market, these ideas have uh, become for many a kind of second nature. It's important to know actually that not only historically, you know, people organize their life in a communitarian base. 
but even today that exists. So those those commons are very much under attack. I, I want to conclude our discussion by going back to the theme of revolution, because the revolutionary productive work, you know, revolution at point zero, which is the the moment of the production, because I think it's there that we have to begin to change uh, our our world, you know, our relationship. We certainly have to create a world that is based on a very different logic than the capitalist logic. We have to build a world that is based on cooperation and is built not on the exploitation of other human beings and is not built on the exploitation of the natural world, you know, because this is a world that can only promise poverty, war, and different forms of racism. And already we see how destructive it is of the planet and human life. So the alternative today for many people is encapsulated in the idea of the commons. And in my view, we begin to build the commons not only defending, you know, those spaces and those natural resources that are all around us, and now are being privatized. You know, so we need to build a movement and coalition between people who are struggling around ecology, families, and uh, many other social movements to defend those spaces. But we also have to transform the everyday life. We have to transform our homes of reproduction, which has been organized in a way they divide us. You know, uh, it's been organized in a way that really individualizes and optimizes our life. And, you know, this is not, it's a way that, um, makes us feel more powerless, more alone. Mm -hmm. So I'm very interested, in fact, of rethinking the home, you know, rethinking the relationship between the home and the community and, uh, seeing how we can, in fact, transform, begin to transform our life starting from, you know, our relationship in the family, but also the whole social architecture of the home and the way reproductive work is performed. So we need, in fact, to, as part of our struggle, and even as a base from which to begin to reclaim the resources that are taken away from us, you know, but we need to really create a new social fabric. And I think that that's the kind of revolution that uh, we need to begin, you know, in our own life, you know, starting from our home. As I was listening to you, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if this society also included, you know, the right to leisure, the right to imagine yes. ourselves, you know, enjoying. Right, because it's work, work, work. You know, there are no women. Uh, women are, the, in the United States, they are the main consumer of uh, antidepressants. Depression is today a, a national disease. They say we live longer, but how do we live? Thank you so much for being with us today. What inspires you? What inspires you to get up every morning and mobilize and organize and continue to do work that many people see as an uphill struggle? You know, what inspires me is the fact that no matter how bad 
things appear and are hopeless. Children are still born, and they are going to pose questions of us. You know, I remember myself as a child. I used to pester my mother and say, you know, why, why was I born during the war? You know, I think of the new children, the new generation who are expecting to have a life. Thank you so much for being with us. My guest is Dr. Sylvia Federici. She is the author of Revolution at Grand Zero. Tell our audience how they can access your book. Distributed by PM Press or I'm sure also Amazon. Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.